Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast. My name is Charles Casty. I am a master of physics, teacher of mathematics, and a lover of wisdom. And my name is Igor Grossman. I'm a behavioral scientist, a closet philosopher, some people call me, and I'm a professor of psychology, and I'm studying wisdom and cultures. So this um, is our very first episode. So before we dive into many, many, many juicy topics, I thought it might make sense to just say how we got here. So Igor, how did me here and you there get here? I would say it was coffee, a love for coffee. <laughs> uh, I think it was this uh, coffee shop uh, in Oxford. Mm. Uh, and then we sort of met there, right? And right. Uh, started discussing uh, the merits of coffee and the ways how to produce it. And then um, started talking about wisdom. Yeah, I remember you talking a lot about third wave coffee. I think I learned more about <laughs> coffee than about wisdom in that session. But, um, well, that's why we need the podcast. Yeah, right, right. Um, have you been drinking a lot of good coffee recently? <laughs> Some. Some. Um, basically, from my end of things, so I'm not a psychologist, my background's physics, but it's come to my attention, should I put it rather grandiosely, that wisdom, which was something that I'd always associated with philosophy, is no longer limited to philosophy. So in recent years, wi wisdom, this sort of peak state of human development, has been dragged into the labs and people have kind of got empirical on it. And for me, this is incredibly exciting. So physics is brilliant. I love it. I love the methods, scientific method I'm a huge fan of. But it tends to narrow on really, really small details, things that I can't really relate to and don't really help me live a meaningful life. So we have these incredible precise tools, but the questions of physics tend to be questions that, I don't know, I find hard to relate to my own experience. Then there's wisdom. Now, wisdom, on the other hand, fantastically deep, incredibly important, you know, teaches us how to shape meaning from our lives. But there's no science to it. There never has been in my mind until I came across that this is no longer the case. So it seems in the kind of past 20 or 30 years, it's become quite serious and a proper subject of empirical research. So that's what's got me really excited. With that in mind, I was really keen to let's have a look at this research and put a podcast together. So I contacted you following our coffee discussions and said, Igor, I think it's time that we took this coffee and wisdom chat and we took it to the people. And you said, hey, I had a similar idea. I was going to start a podcast too. So that's kind of how we got here, I think. Right. Yeah. So that's the unholy alliance that we have now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the idea that we have in mind uh, for you guys is that uh, we will be discussing the newest findings and we will try to break them down a little bit. Various new insights about the role of aging, the role of uh, emotions, uh, how uh, to be wise in the workplace, and examine uh, how wisdom may be of impact for people and for the society, as well as uh, how can we use it in our everyday life. So in other ways, what can science tell us about how to live wise lives, how to live wisely? And that's basically what this podcast is about. I'm pretty excited. How about you? I am. And I need more coffee. Give me a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about wisdom versus intelligence. You know, it's something that I, I kind of like this topic because I think someone who's never heard of the idea of wisdom research would, if you said, look, think of someone who's wise, think of someone who's intelligent, they can kind of get a bit of a feel that that might not quite necessarily be the same person. So it seemed like a good place to start. So yeah, let, let's just kind of dive in. Do, do you think it's helpful to start with trying to get some sort of rough, <laughs> loose definition for these two, two um, constructs? Well, I think uh, what we may want to do first is uh, talk about all sorts of definitions, because uh, uh, we could spend hours uh, just try to define either concept, but at yeah. least have some kind of an uh, overview um, uh, of what are the different ideas that people may be thinking about when they talk about intelligence, when they talk about wisdom. Uh, that would be helpful, uh, in part because uh, that will help to sort out possibly uh, how our listeners are thinking about it. I have a definition right here, actually, which was is from this classic uh, Vivian Clayton paper. Uh, right. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there because it's two lines and it just kind of can get the ball rolling. Uh, so Vivian Clayton is a researcher from what, 70s, 80s kind of 
era and kind of a real like the grandmother of of, of the field to a certain extent and she from my understanding she kind of did a big review of the sort of wisdom literature and then begun to sort of link it to psychology and sort of pushed it in the direction of the lab i don't know if she actually did any empirical research herself do you do you know about that uh, no, she did. Uh, she she did. did quite a bit of research, but it was at the very early stages. Mm. And um, I guess you could say it's more like proto-research. Some of it was more on the ideas of what is wisdom mm. and how people sort of view wisdom. I think most of it was actually more along those lines. But I think at some point she decided to go in a more clinical practice direction. Right. And uh, yeah, so stop doing uh, empirical work. Yeah. So do you, you want to hear this then? Yes, please. Um, it says, uh, intelligence can be defined as the ability to think logically, to conceptualize and abstract from reality. Wisdom can be defined as the ability to grasp human nature, which is paradoxical, contradictory and subject to continual change. So that's quite an interesting place to start. Does that resonate with you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, in many ways, I think it resonates with the majority of people who are working on the topic of wisdom today. Because as you said, this is sort of a proto-idea from which everything evolved, if you want. But of course, Clayton was also just building in many ways on uh, some of the philosophical and other behavioral uh, uh, scientists' ideas about sort of you know what is the mature thinking, what are the struggles or challenges people may be encountering over the course of their life, and uh, the notion of paradox or uncertainty mm-hmm. in uh, how the life may unfold, difficulties that people may be facing at different periods of their life. All that sort of made its way into her definition. Mm. I like this um, this kind of distinction she makes about. Essentially, that intelligence is fine if you have. I kind of think, I keep seeing this term turn up in the literature about ill-defined versus well-defined problems. So, like, if you have a well-defined problem, uh, which are kind of like is a maths problem, you know, I'm a, I teach maths, so you know, right. when we give when we give pupils or students questions, it's well-defined. All the information is there. Um, so she says intelligence will sort of, you know, get the job done in that context. But that's just kind of not really that helpful in in most real world sort of situated decisions that we actually face every day. That's where you need, you know, a different way of looking at things. And, and that's kind of a sort of area that wisdom is much more helpful in when you've got these ill-defined. I've also seen them defined as like wicked problems. Yeah, well, wicked is a term that some of the urban planning researchers, I think, are using when they're like, well, how do we build a city? There's so many different yeah. issues to consider. The, the politicians, the interests of different environmental protection groups, mm. uh, those people who want to drive cars, uh, those people who want to ride a bicycle, uh, and so on. And so that's why it's it's wicked, because it's hard to figure it out. Like another term that's also used there is an uh, ill uh, structured problem. So that's uh, in decision-making research, Herbert Simon talked about that, uh, got the Nobel Prize. And uh, the idea is very similar. So this kind of, there are no clear-cut parameters uh, in terms of what the outcomes could be, what are the optimal outcomes uh, that one could uh, figure out through a simple uh, or more complex math equation. So mm-hmm. like Nash's equilibrium may not necessarily be super helpful here, uh, because you don't know all the ingredients that would go into the equation. And so the same is true for ill-defined problems, mm. because you don't know the parameters. You have this uncertainty, you have this paradox, as Clayton was saying, uh, that it becomes tricky to sort of use uh, simple, rational uh, logic, so to say. Yeah. I have a bit of a question mark over this point, because it seems a, a little bit unfair to intelligence, uh, on the one hand, to say that it, it wouldn't, I mean, it's kind of going to sound a bit daft, but um, <laughs> okay. couldn't, couldn't intelligence, you know, couldn't you use your intelligence to be aware that you have an ill-defined problem, you know, and you don't know this information, and so we can't, we can't take anything from this particular index because we don't know that. Couldn't, couldn't you still sort of use the sort of clear construct of intelligence even when you know there's certain information that you don't that you know that you don't have or is or is it this idea that there's information that we don't know we don't have 
Well, see, uh, Charles, you right away start talking about what's the definition of intelligence. You, you start using a particular definition of intelligence. It's like the ability to process information in such a way that you can be attuned to the complexity and understand complexity and have a sense of insight. And if that's the definition of intelligence, if it inc- incorporates the idea of getting this insight, then certainly, mm-hmm. uh, certainly the intelligent person would be able to do it. And the problem is, as, as I can see it, that many of the mainstream definitions of intelligence that are used right now, like to test kids in schools in North America, for instance, uh, to prepare them for uh, entrance exams to the universities, they do not include this uh, notion of insight. Uh, right. That's maybe more creativity or maybe something else. I mean, they don't test big picture thinking. Instead of that, they test you know your verbal knowledge or, or they test uh, the ability to quickly solve the simple uh, puzzles on a computer mm. screen. Mm. And, um, and so if that is the definition of intelligence, that of course, uh, that would not help you necessarily realize the complexity. Yeah. There's sort of two main distinctions that I, I, I've got from kind of looking at the literature. One seems to be this sort of abstract versus concrete. The other seems to be this, this kind of impersonal versus personal, like that wisdom really is, is a social thing. It's about human nature. It's about people. Um, and intelligence isn't necessarily. Um, so that, again, makes wisdom sound a lot more relevant to to people's, the kind of decisions people might take in their own lives. Yeah, so of course that that's tricky because what is then the distinction between that and the concept that is currently also quite popular in um, business, the uh, notion of the social intelligence? Mm-hmm. And um, I often find it very hard to dis- distinguish uh, the basic features of uh, social intelligence from wisdom. Well, what, what do you think? Well, what, 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 when, you see, when you hear wisdom and you hear social intelligence or emotional intelligence is another one, uh, how would you differentiate them? Social intelligence could still be used in, to climb you know, through your career, you could understand, you could have intelligence about how people think and how people operate. And then you could use your understanding or your your, uh, understanding of how people operate for your own ends. Whereas that sort of behavior doesn't sound like wisdom, because wisdom seems to have this component of your kind of doing good, ultimately, you're sort of using intelligence to do good. So I would have thought that would be one sort of Thing that occurs to me off the bat that social intelligence doesn't have any sort of uh, it's not yoked in any way to doing good well the issue of course is that when you say doing good then we have to define what that means yeah or like greater good is another term like what is greater good how do we decide uh whom it is great for yeah how, <laughs> so, how big is our circle that's right. That's right. Are we talking only about our in-group or are we including the whole humanity, for instance? There are a lot yeah. of uh, I think the whole of humanity. I think uh, it seems like, I don't know, this is kind of going way off topic and it's probably straying into episode 19 or something. But <laughs> it seems that this, um, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll throw it out there and we can, I can always edit it out if it doesn't oh, fit. But yeah. the, um, this idea of, you know, wisdom being about finding a solution that works for a the group and the fact that through sort of globalization we're more aware of the connectedness of our group you know that the group that we have a sort of concern for is seems to be getting larger and larger and and that could be perhaps driving some of the interest in a framework that would be helpful to find solutions that work for a large group so you know i've always thought of that as a little bit of a driver behind this kind of increasing interest in this area it's interesting, but you know, like when I think about this, like uh, there is always uh, a sort of like in Hegelian uh, tradition, sort of like a famous German philosopher, like uh, there is a thesis and there is an antithesis. I mean, there is a drive towards globalization, or you can call it a sort of like more East Asian, like yin and yang idea. Mm-hmm. There is a gl- drive towards globalization, but there is also an incredible increase in awareness that uh, you may want to protect your own interests because globalization may just mm-hmm. benefit the mainstream and uh, will marginalize uh, smaller groups, will kick them out. And it leads to sort of like the opposite movement, so to say. And, yeah, and we, uh, so we kind of seem to be seeing that in a big way at the moment. That's right. 
That's right. And so then uh, from this perspective, there is always like almost the opposition of, uh, yeah, the globalization may unite us all, but at the same time, it may, it may in turn produce uh, radical elements. And it's not entirely clear to me that uh, the radical elements would be as convinced by the idea of shared humanity. Mm. Well, I th- <laughs> yeah, uh, it sounds like we should come back to that. Is big, yeah. That, that that sounds like a good topic for another episode. Yeah, yeah. I so so I'm kind of getting that you know wisdom and intelligence. I'm beginning to think. Okay, so wisdom seems to be uh, about uh, situated, concrete situations, and it, and it seems to be social. And 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 then I've also come across this idea of it, it being about should rather than how. So like intelligence has this like a kind of um, amoral, not immoral, but intelligence has an amoral quality to it it's just how would we do this whereas wisdom doesn't seem to be free from morality in that sense yeah i mean that certainly resonates with some scientists and how they think about it i find it often difficult to integrate morality and wisdom i mean you and i talked about it earlier i think uh, not as part of the podcast but in like in general mm. my issue is that if i cannot define the morality or if I don't have a full understanding of what that would entail, for instance, on the individual level for the person, then uh, how am I supposed to conceptualize this whole thing where morality does appear to play a role? Mm -hmm. Like from the empirical standpoint, for instance, if I want to measure something like wisdom or components of wisdom, Mm -hmm. uh, what is then the role of moral concerns? Uh, For me, that's a challenge. I think uh, I would rather... I would rather focus on something that's narrow uh, and then I can know very well and tie it and have a good way of measuring it but and understanding what does it mean conceptually, knowing that it doesn't capture the whole wisdom potentially, rather than try to go broader and uh, encompass everything. But there are different philosophies on that. Uh, Like Some scholars go in a different direction. Mm. They try to be as broad as possible. Often they don't work empirically. Mm. because that's where it uh, becomes a real challenge. Yeah. Um, I, another way to think about it, uh, well, what do you think about this, Charles? Like, what, what, if, what if we think of wisdom, uh, the distinction between wisdom and social intelligence, more in terms of social intelligence is actually for solving a concrete problem in a given moment, and often in a way that would benefit you. I mean, you don't really think about how it benefits somebody else, right? So right. in a way, it is very concrete, focused to solving a concrete problem, but it's also very decontextualized in a way that you don't really care about who the other people are and what the consequences for them are, as long as it, do, uh, it doesn't hurt you in the long run. I mean, you may be considerate of you know, the long-stream consequences if you hurt somebody, but that always has this focus on you. And in most cases, you're just concerned about the problem. And for wisdom, like I think the wisdom the difference to wisdom is that it's. Uh, it seems to me that it would be more about uh, right away trying to consider this kind of long term consequences and uh, not think about personal benefits, but maybe benefits for the group that you're part of. Like that's a, that would uh, suggest that it's both more contextualized and less about the concrete situation at hand. So you may not necessarily win this moment, but that's not that important. Uh, you may not get the best gain, but that's not that important as long as it sort of benefits your group. Um, that's another way to think about it, I think. Okay, so that's a, a sort of um, wisdom as a zooming out and looking at a bigger picture. Rather that's than right. That's yeah. right. I think I think that would chime with people's intuitions about wisdom it seems that you know i like you say you can imagine someone you know, on a chess game sacrificing a pawn to perhaps make a greater gain in the long term or you know even that sounds i suppose slightly cynical because you're you're thinking that that's probably more stri- uh, strategy than wisdom but there always seems to be with wisdom this um this facility to not get absorbed in what's right there in front of you but to view things on a, on a longer time scale and perhaps mm-hmm. how it affects a larger number of people. Yeah, I think it's like a, probably a completely different episode on the idea of sort of mm. is there Machiavellian wisdom? Is there somebody who can yeah. be completely self-centered and yet still act 
in a very wise fashion uh, or be perceived as by somebody else as wise, despite their sort of like great self-interest in mind. But I think uh, that's, a, that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, mean, it later. I was also quite surprised that the research seems to suggest there's like really not very much association between people that score quite well on, on wise reasoning measures and, you know, and, and their scores on intelligence tests. The, you know, am I right in thinking that there's not a weak, if anything, association between those two kind of measures? Well, so far, that's that's right. So, like, uh, if somebody is uh, taking a classic IQ test uh, or some components of it, like, say, working memory or vocabulary measure of how good your vocabulary is, how well you do you understand it, or even sort of processing speed of information, you don't see much of a relationship to thinking in the big picture. I mean, like if you think about wisdom as a disability that we just discussed to think in the big picture and mm-hmm. try to uh, consider long-term consequences and try to plan in different ways uh, how these consequences may affect you, try to take different perspectives into account, that is kind of independent uh, in many ways from uh, the speed of processing information. But the one thing that uh, is kind of uh, tricky to uh, I, I say there is a caveat to all of this, uh, Charles. So the caveat is that uh, it's not really, so far the research didn't really capture the full spectrum. Quite often, this uh, just uh, the samples, just uh, people who come into the lab who have, uh, on average, pretty high level of intelligence. So there is yeah. a fairly small range on which you test it. So we don't have people who have possibly lower uh, than average IQs. I think that's a problem. Like, so I, I can imagine that on the lower end, of course, some level of uh, ability to process information or have some vocabulary could be fairly important uh, for being able to plan for the future, to verbalize, to get sort of like a big picture uh, potentially. But it's just when you get to this high level uh, of intelligence, you don't see additional benefit of even more intelligence. Right. Um, so uh, that's the caveat. So I think like we kind of need more research on this. But uh, so far, you're right. It's uh, the among the average uh, uh, intelligent people, there is not much of an advantage of being even smarter for their wisdom. Yeah, I mean, and one one thing that I really wanted to a distinction between the two was. And again, I, I'm, I know we will talk about this in a future episode, but mm-hmm. wisdom, intelligence, and their relative relate correlations or associations with well-being, because you know it's the big one, isn't it? Well-being. You know, people want to know about anything that will contribute to well-being. And um, it, so, what it, do you mean with well-being, Charles? Well, I, this is kind of the, the, the sort of the details. So there's like loads of different component uh-huh. aspects to it. I was looking at some uh, research yesterday, and it was saying, you know, wise reasoning was linked to greater life satisfaction, better social relationships, more sort of positive to negative word ratios, even greater longevity. So these these are the kind of things that I'm thinking about when I'm talking about well being, um, mm-hmm. and that there there wasn't really a similar association with intelligence and these components of well-being yeah so why do you think that is i don't i mean like why do i think that is i mean i think it's probably a matter of i don't know i'm probably a little bit traditional in the sense that i think if you're if you're constantly well i my father always used to say that you know you you achieve well-being or happiness through looking out for other people essentially so if you're if wise reasoning includes looking out for other people that may well sort of contribute to feeling good yourself whereas if your in, intelligence as far as we've discussed it so far doesn't have any any is no sort of necessity that it, it has to be contributing to other people's interests so why would it necessarily lead to happiness for you i mean i think it, intelligence may well lead I, c- I can imagine intelligence being contribute can contribute to sort of hedonism perhaps something along those lines but it seems to resonate with me that people that are constantly looking out for the well-being of other people would probably also achieve greater well-being themselves you know themselves right well, I mean, you know, it's, it is it is still a puzzle. So I think it's kind of early to tell. But uh, certainly, uh, if you talk about well-being, 
in terms of happiness, in terms of how good you feel, well, the ability to regulate your emotions, specifically when you deal with difficult situations, um, adversity or something like that, uh, major traumas, it does not really help you if you are just very, very smart. Um, and we, we know that we have examples of very, very smart people who are very, very miserable, like yeah. really spend a lot of time, like thinking about uh, uh, the difficulties that they're going through and coming up with yeah. all sorts of crazy scenarios. I mean, yeah. like, think about like crime and punishment and just right, right, right? like right. that's certainly Too an example for his own good. Well, not necessarily too intelligent, but it doesn't seem like intelligence anyway solves the problems. You could just yeah. spend hours just ruminating about your negative experiences. And so what, uh, what some of this clinical research uh, shows is that the people who spend more time ruminating, in many ways, they just become depressed. I mean, that certainly doesn't mm. help you. And then there is other work showing that, well, it depends on how you think about this negative experiences. So it's not just about the matter of thinking and having ability to come up with lots of different alternatives, but it's a particular way of sort of integrating these pieces of information where you are not maybe in the center of attention, that it's not all just about you, uh, but you just take sort of a third-person perspective, for instance, of yourself, or you try to simulate different scenarios, how you can actually improve in the future. So instead of like just reliving the experience again and again and again. And so then it does help. Then it's sort of that sort of uh, classic path, at least in North American clinical literature, for uh, recovery and maybe downregulating this uh, very aversive negative experience and helping to work through it uh, in a way that you'll feel better afterwards. So from this perspective, so just like just a mere capacity to uh, reflect doesn't help. It's more the question how you reflect. And so like when you said like this term, like reasoning, like the wise reasoning, I think we don't discuss that one yet. So we want to do it in a sec. But as this kind of way of what would be the way to reflect uh, that would help you, for instance, uh, to feel happy after a negative experience, right? So that's uh, the day I see, like, if we define wisdom in that way, uh, that it can actually help you to feel better afterwards. Um, but I mean, I'm not sure, for instance, if, if you define wisdom in terms of morality, it was like, again, it was like, go back to the definitional question, that a more, uh, feeling a greater sense of morality makes you happier in the long term and maybe more content uh, with your environment. But then again, maybe you're thinking about crisis and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that are happening all over the world. And uh, uh, there are some researchers who say that uh, well, that's uh, why should you feel happy afterwards? Yeah. Uh, the world is not necessarily a better place. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of doomsday sort of uh, rhetoric uh, that's happening right now. I'm not sure if all of it is justified. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were going to talk about the strengths and pitfalls of, um, I guess, prioritizing intelligence over wisdom or, you know, or vice versa. Um, so there was something interesting I, I came across in the paper of, that you sent me this week. And you were, you were talking about how, uh, I would like you to help me understand it a little bit, but you were saying that wise people tend to zoom out a little bit and consider multiple ways that some a situation could unfold. And therefore, they're not really invested in a particular outcome. So therefore, they're less likely to... Uh, fall prey to the confirmation bias. Then the, the the flip side of it, I think you were saying that intelligence might lead to greater self-focus, which would lead to people, you know, picking one solution and, and then falling prey to this bias as you try and find evidence that supports that this is the right solution. Did I have that right? Have I slightly misunderstood that? No, I think uh, that's quite Right. I mean, that's one possibility to think about it. So like yeah. if wisdom is about sort of being able to take the bigger picture into account mm. uh, and intelligence does not necessarily, not necessarily means like you can, if you're intelligence, like under, I mean, you need a certain level of intelligence to be able to consider the bigger pictures, like to abstract and so on. But then uh, if you have an average level of intelligence, it does not necessarily make you right away somebody who takes a, uh, a big picture perspective into account. Under some circumstances, you may. Mm -hmm. uh, under other circumstances, you may not. And those circumstances under which you may would be then aligning wisdom and intelligence. And the other circumstances, 
would lead or, or intelligence on the path of uh, this confirmation bias. So like where you try to seek more information and so like just confirming your initial ideas. It's like, oh, I knew it all along. Of course it's this because look, <laughs> there are 20 different reasons why I'm right and you're wrong. Mm. And of course, you know, if you're really smart, you will be able to come up with this 20 different reasons. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's exactly reflects the reality. Right, uh, it gotcha. just may be that you're just like very, very good and very smart at finding good arguments. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I mean, I, I can, fr- from what we've kind of discussed, I think it's probably quite easy to think of ways that wisdom trumps intelligence. But like, if we're talking about the strengths and pitfalls of each, like, what occurs to you as, as a, a pitfall of wisdom? You know, that where, because it seems like, well, yeah, intelligence, you know, you'd be you know, looking too narrow, you're not looking at the big picture, you know, yeah. almost everything we've said so far would say wisdom, you know, wisdom's the, the, the don, it's obviously better than intelligence. Um, but are there scenarios that are the flip side, you know, that, what what traps are there or pitfalls associated with oh boy. wisdom? And yeah. wisdom seems pretty, seems pretty cool, right? It seems to cover a lot. And it seems to well, be a bigger thing. Well, intelligence is pretty than... cool too. I, mean, I yeah, think both yeah. of them are pretty cool. But I, yeah. I guess I could start with one where I think both of them would not necessarily be very helpful. Right. Okay, so if you want to have like a uh, really enjoy sex, yeah. I don't think either wisdom or intelligence, it's like the perspective, uh, being able to really <laughs> take a big picture perspective. In no, many, many ways, true. it may sort of zoom you out of the experience. I don't, I'm not. I'm using yeah, sex right. as an example, but of yeah. course, uh, you know, playing a, a very enjoyable video game yeah. or being in the moment when watching a, a movie where you have a feeling that you're right there. It's like mm. instead of taking like big picture perspective into account on the first screening, I think like you, you can do it on the second or third screening, but that would sort of zoom you out of the experience yeah. and that may have uh, negative consequences. So, I mean, but this, of course, concerns like where neither wisdom nor probably intelligence would help you. Or maybe intelligence actually would help with movie watching. I don't think it would help with sex. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I haven't found the, that yet. I mean, uh, I, 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 I completely, that makes a lot of sense. But, and, and I've often been confused by this, in this idea that people talk about, you know, focusing on the moment. And that is obviously something that can make your experience of things a lot richer so the wisdom has this slightly hmm, slightly cold quality to it in that regards that you're constantly pulling pulling yourself out of your human experience well you're you're probably you're more likely to be I mean, again, depends on the type of wisdom. Uh, Some people would say that that's precisely what wisdom is about. It's about having and being aware of these experiences and trying to integrate them. But I would say that under many circumstances, this process of integration is a step that would be pulling you out in some ways. Uh, So like being aware of your emotions or being aware of how much you enjoy something is one thing. And trying to integrate those things together with other features of the environment, uh, with um, taking this kind of big picture into account of your experiences, the thinking, and so on and so forth, this form of integration does pull you out. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, the other thing that I guess where wisdom and intelligence where wisdom may not necessarily help, but intelligence would. Well, like imagine you're like a pilot and you're, you're in your super jet, you have a very fast jet, and you have to make a quick snap decision about whether you should be uh, shooting on another plane in front of you, you're in an air combat or not. Now, this has uh, both a moral, maybe wisdom-related, and intelligence component. The, the, the moral component uh, would be, of course, well, am I justified, for instance? Uh, the, do, what are my principles that uh, allow me to harm somebody else? And in many circumstances, if you're a pilot and you're engaging with a, uh, somebody who is, uh, uh, you know, maybe your enemy, you would be right away not even thinking about that, but you would be making that decision, right? But I think what is more important here instead of deliberation, is quite often, if you already made that decision that this is the enemy or somebody told you this is the enemy, it's your ability to quickly and very efficiently navigate the situation, process information as quickly as you can, and shoot. 
So mm-hmm. in this kind of combat situations or this kind of aggressive situations, I can imagine that wisdom would not necessarily be beneficial. I mean, the way in the preparation phase, it would be like you the tactical decisions or uh, uh, developing a certain strategy. Uh, but then in the actual moment of engagement, uh, I think uh, it would be the intelligence as it defined currently by mainstream intelligence researchers, so like processing abilities, uh, ability to formulate a decision quickly and efficiently, for instance, that would benefit uh, much more. And a deliberation, like a wisdom as a form of sort of kind of a deliberative, uh, taking you out, an integrative process would not necessarily help. Yeah, so so wisdom sort of um, seems to fit and serve its purpose in the sort of reflection phase. But then when it comes to the execution, that has to sort of be put to one side and you just have to get on with it once you've decided what, what you're going to do. Right. I, I'm, I'm pleased that you have come up with something that is a weakness in wisdom because um, <laughs> it, it, it does make sense, actually, like that... It can, you, you know, be a useless soldier, wouldn't you? If you were like running across a battlefield and you kept on sitting down and like looking at the clouds and reflecting on the big picture all the time. Um, so, well, all, the, I think the issue there, Charles, is like all the time because I do yeah. believe that uh, even among soldiers, uh, the notion of ethics plays a big role. Now, the more, for instance, military is moving towards uh, not first-hand combat, but uh, being, but sitting at the computers and using drones, for instance, to yeah. Uh, kill targets. I mean, there's a question then, are they, are they, is there collateral damage and how do you make a decision, right? And so there are the notion of ethics and the notion of considering the big picture of the what is the gain, what is the cost, does play a large role. I mean, I wish, of course, uh, this type of consideration would play an even bigger role, but I do think that certainly in Western military, uh, there are some attempts to teach these skills. Um, to soldiers, uh, especially those who are involved in those type of divisions. We were talking about, um, during the week, we were talking about this idea. You know, we, we seem to be kind of saying that, you know, intelligence somehow uh, sits inside wisdom. You know, it seems like wisdom is a bigger thing that requires intelligence. But you were putting forward this idea in emails back and forth, you know, could you be wise without being intelligent you know and if intelligence is a sort of sub not sub level that doesn't sound quite right but you know i would have thought you would you would need intelligence for wisdom so if Mm -hmm. you weren't intelligent you couldn't be wise but then there's this this argument about experience you know you can imagine a, a a wise old lady you know grandmother who's accumulated a huge amount huge amount of experience over her life she might not necessarily have very high iq but you can imagine she would have kind of accumulated a great deal of understanding about human nature. So would that be an example? Would you, would you say that's an example of someone who, or a mechanism by which someone could be wise, but not necessarily intelligent? Mm, uh, possibly. I mean, I think the, well, I mean, I, I guess a critic would say that you kind of need a certain level of intelligence to be able to soak up those experiences and convert them into them. something yeah. that you yeah. would be able to use later on. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking more in terms of like the extremes, you know, like if you define and this circles back to this idea of what is what is intelligence and what is wisdom. And um, if you, for instance, define intelligence again in terms of this kind of processing abilities, the big vocabulary, you can imagine that somebody would not have a huge vocabulary or like a, or or would have a let's say somebody has a fantastic vocabulary and is actually very sharp. Uh, incredibly sharp. Uh, maybe he works on the next uh, theoretical breakthrough in physics, <laughs> but then completely ignores the reality around him or herself. Yeah? So this person is not really uh, able to uh, see the big picture in the context of you know interpersonal affairs. Yeah, I think well, we all know think, we all know some people like that. Right. So there are examples, or you can have somebody uh, like the opposite example, like somebody who is very well versed in uh, sort of intuitively figuring out how to attune to other people, what to do in a difficult situation. But if you ask him or her to verbalize it, they would not be able to tell you. 
And in fact, if you ask this person to play a computer game, he will just or she will just score very, very poorly on this computer game. I mean, that's or average, maybe just average, not horrible. I think, uh, again, like I do think that you need some level of intelligence for being able to make any of these decisions. And that there is a common ground where without some ability to process yeah. information, of course, you will not be able to. Some, like, like some sort of yeah. threshold, a threshold of IQ. That's right. That's yeah. right. But like, but I think on the extremes, it can go in different directions. Like there's a certain specialization uh, that would either be focusing more on being able to integrate, to be able to see the big picture, or maybe to just process information very quickly, very efficiently, accumulate mm. a lot of information, store it uh, in a way like maybe having a large memory memory you know those are different uh, those are hypotheticals again because uh, uh, I don't know any of any study that uh, looked at uh, wisdom of the gifted this is gifted as defined by you know standard intelligence tests yeah. uh, and uh, we also don't know much about intelligence of uh, uh, those people who would commonly be agreed to be wise, like remarkable individuals who change the world, for instance. I don't think many of them have done uh, intelligence tests. Yeah, uh, just completely anecdotally, I would say when I think of examples of those two extremes, a lot more examples come to mind of someone who's highly intelligent but not wise rather than vice versa. Would you say that from your own experience? I mean, not that that's science, but just anecdotally? Uh, yes, uh, I do. I do think that uh, you and I uh, would have easier time finding these examples. And the reason is that we live in the environment in which, well, you know, you, you, you're a school teacher, I'm a professor, we're surrounded by smart and intelligent people who may vary dramatically in their ability to, you know, engage in some form of wisdom. Mm. And I can imagine that if you lived in a less, um, let's say, intellectually stimulating environment, or maybe, um, uh, for instance, on the countryside where people do not necessarily care much about you know having a fantastic vocabulary, but they mm. need to be more attuned to nature, or uh, for instance, farmers, okay? Mm. Um, they, there, I can imagine that you would have a greater variability of intelligence uh, and would have easier time. Again, just anecdotally, mm. speculatively, I would say. Um, so that the, you would find the reversal. So I think it just yeah. matter. It's a, it's a function of the milieu of the environment that you and I are more accustomed to. Yeah, that's and that's a trap that's very easy to fall into, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. And then, yeah. then think, well, this is like, that's how the world is. I think like we yeah. very constrained, uh, constrained in uh, in the in what we are comfortable with and the environment that we live in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, there was a question I really was keen to pick your brain on. Um, you know, like you've done a lot of research yourself, which shows the, the sort of evident amazingness, to use a non-very scientific word, or the usefulness or value of wisdom. And people are pretty aware of the value of intelligence. But if it's so useful and, and so valuable and seems to contribute to all these you know, very important um, measures, why has it been overlooked in terms of both the public debate and empirical research? I mean, it's sure it's been discussed in philosophy you know, continuously for thousands of years, but why did intelligence kind of get the jump on wisdom? And wisdom sort of seems to be catching up now in terms of the we're not quite catching up, but it's now getting more attention. Why is it that intelligence, yeah, sort of has been much more central in both the empirical studies and the public debate than wisdom, if wisdom has all these wonderful benefits? Well, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I've got some ideas, but I'm really interested to know. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's, it's a tricky question. I mean, but I think there's a very obvious pragmatic answer, and that is uh, – uh, the way the intelligence research emerged, uh, there was always a focus on trying to identify some kind of a, or from the very early on, at least in the early 20th century, uh, to do two things, actually. One was to uh, find some kind of a essence of intelligence. Uh, some scholars call it the G. 
uh, or multiple Gs, like fr- fluid mm. and crystallized intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Also, like the ability to process for you. And then uh, that's very appealing, of course, then to neuroscientists and to behavioral scholars because you can sort of focus on this kind of overarching meta construct and look for uh, neuroscientific evidence and uh, focus on. Uh, how, you know, what brain areas may be activated uh, when you in, engage the Gs or, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's easy sort of like to link it to this kind of big construct that has some commonality. And like, and if wisdom is sort of kind of this distributed network of many little things, it becomes much harder to study. Uh, much more difficult to uh, master because you can't just say, oh, look, there's this brain area that is very important for wisdom because like, uh, wait a second, which aspect of wisdom are you right. talking about? Right. So it's very hard. But the other issue that is pragmatic is that, so because it's, it's a bottom line, the answer is it's, it's just very much more complex in a way yeah. because- It's uh, just harder. <laughs> It's just harder, yeah. um, and uh, and it's, it has this moral component, and uh, psychologists often don't like to talk mm. about morals mm. because they uh, they uh, have the sense that uh, that becomes prescriptive, uh, a normative, and as empirical scientists, we should not be normative and prescriptive. We are really more mm. descriptive. We understand, we want to understand the reality, not tell mm. the uh, the the people what the reality should be like. Because right. if there is this kind of negative sense uh, 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 in the academic community of behavioral scholars, that that's not something that we want to do. And the other issue is that. Um, uh, when uh, also just very pragmatically and historically, when when intelligence research started, it started in education, and uh, people were trying to figure out who, uh, what are the sort of learning disabilities, and how can we teach kids better. And so, like the, the very beginning, the notion of education and intelligence was confined. So it's not a surprise that in education we try then uh, to uh, figure out ways to make kids more intelligent. Uh, there's this kind of like very symbiotic relationship uh, between uh, uh, the notion of an IQ, uh, sort of this mainstream definition of processing ability, uh, be able to learn, uh, uh, be able to have a large uh, vocabulary, large memory capacity, and uh, uh, the classic education in uh, Western schooling systems, like in both in uh, Western Europe and in North America. And I think uh, wisdom just was not there. I mean, the, because uh, um, in, certainly in the 20th century, people couldn't even agree on what would be the notion of morality in schools. And I, th- I think there is still quite a bit of debate. How can you teach people to be moral? I, I don't think in schools we really do that. There are some attempts now, but it's not something that uh, uh, is easy. Again, because it's more complex, because there is no common G denominator. Yeah. So, so that's for me. That's that's like these two historical reasons. uh, Like education and IQ are kind of co-evolved in Western cultures, Mm. and uh, and the reasons of complexity of the constructs. Or Mm. it's not like that. I'm not trying to say that the intelligence is not complex. It's super complex. Yeah. But there is this focus on sort of like some kind of underlying structures and some kind of common uh, common features. Uh, that makes it much more appealing for some scientists than the notion of very distributed framework. I think if you would have a uh, a notion of common underlying structures for wisdom, which would be distinct from intelligence, as uh, mainstream intelligence researchers define it, uh, that would make also the topic of wisdom very appealing to scientists. Yeah. We we were talking about education just then, and um, we'd been speaking earlier in the week about this idea that a focus on intelligence in education seems to, you know, in some situations actually lead, you know, crowding out wisdom, you know, and um, lead people to being less sort of socially responsibly minded. Um, so is that, is it sort of in education, if you, if you foc- focus on intelligence, you push out wisdom, you know, can the two be brought together? Is that what's, is that a problem? I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's a it's a big question, Charles. <laughs> what, what do you think? You you're the teacher. I can yeah. only speculate. Well, I no, I I do think that we. It seems to me that, that this is why I'm kind of keep coming back to this moral this right, question right. about morals. That it seems to be in a kind of, and this is just me shooting from the hip a little bit here. But it, it, you know, with less 
people adhering to formal religions, you know, in the West that we um, we've kind of just let go the idea of moral formation. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that just seems to be in schools. It's just, you know, we wouldn't deign to try and morally form people in the classroom. We just go, let's just make sure that they can process things effectively and they can critically analyze things and you know we're not going to tell them what they should think about them but we're just going to tell them how if they wanted to do something they would do it uh, so see education seems to have a kind of seems to be post-moral almost it doesn't seem to be yeah you know feel that that's its realm anymore um so i don't know if it's that's intelligence has pushed that out or more it's just said look we can't that's not really our our business. That's not really our job. What we can do is whatever people decide they want to do, we can give them the skills to be able to achieve it. We're not going to tell people what it is that they should do. So it seems that in schools, we do focus on intelligence and we don't focus on what might be called wisdom. But I wouldn't know whether it's intelligence, the focus on intelligence is preventing the focus on wisdom. It's just, it seems that, you know, we've kind of, we've given up the ghost in trying to lead to you know moral formation as well so you know um, that's kind of my my take on it so i not necessarily that intelligence is preventing wisdom but it's just it's it's more than we can really handle so let's just focus on intelligence right. yeah i could to kind of agree with you i i think also like one thing that you brought up this idea of critical thinking and that you know schools actually teach critical thinking uh, I'm very critical of this <laughs> idea that schools actually do teach because uh, teach that because in fact if you develop critical thinking like whether the ability to sort of discern and uh, manage complex issues where maybe there are multiple interests at stake well that sounds kind of similar to what we talked about so far when we talk about wisdom right 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 and and so and so th- that should be helping one to sort of figure out discern moral situations the different forms of morality. I find that actually admirable if schools are able to achieve that. But the truth is, in my opinion, and then again, it's just me, but I also know quite a bit of research that suggests that that may be the case, that it's really hard to teach critical thinking. And Mm. in fact, there is not even a good way to do that. There is a lot of problems of transfer. You may be kids may be able to recognize critical thinking in one domain, but they will not be able to apply it to critical thinking in another domain. Mm-hmm. And so it's much easier to teach processing of information. It's much easier to teach, as you probably know, like some basic facts, but then the application of those and uh, managing complex materials is harder. So like exact sciences in some ways may be easier to teach, even though they, mm-hmm. uh, even though they may be very, very hard uh, because uh, they require these principles of uh, memorization and uh, they are sort of building step by step on each other. They exact sort of, they're well-defined in many yeah. ways. Yeah. And, and when you deal with this kind of uncertainty, I have a sense that, well, first of all, in the Western world, because we focus so much on exact science, we kind of don't like uncertainty. We we, we, we shy away from uh, topics that are uncertain and where there is no clear-cut answer because it's hard to evaluate that. I mean, there's so much focus right now in education on evaluation of students. Mm. And how are you supposed to evaluate somebody on a topic where there is no clear-cut answer? Right. Well, that's much harder. Yeah, uh, very hard to do in a standardized fashion, and so the standardized tests would not be able to incorporate that very well. And if they are not able to incorporate that very well, then well, there will be fewer items on standardized tests, if at all, dealing with this kind of complex issues. And if so, pragmatically, schools would be teaching those things less because if they are not on standardized tests, then why should them. schools be teaching? Yeah, yeah because yeah. the schools are not. I mean, they doesn't matter if somebody if one school is doing very well in terms of teaching complex issues or like critical thinking if that's not on the test. Yeah. Right? So this type of mentality, I think, over time, I certainly in North America, I don't know how well spread is in Britain, but in North America, it certainly is one probably of the driving forces behind this kind of really focus on exact memorization and stuff like that, and less on this kind of understanding of complexity. And um, I guess like it's related also to this idea of like if you don't uh, really teach kids 
uh, how to deal with this kind of uncertainty, with lack of, with topics where there is no inherent sort of right or wrong answer, uh, which is in many ways moral, then uh, they also are more likely to focus on some kind of very decontextualized forms of knowledge. Yeah, and that's it's funny because listening to you speak there completely reminds me of the fact. So I, I my formal training is in physics. And I, I have taught physics, but I much prefer teaching maths. And and the reason is because it's abstract and it's because it's decontextualized. And there's always an answer. I mean, it's very creative ways, different paths to get to the answer. But right. in physics, you know, their kids will ask you crazy things. And they'll say, you know, like, what if the moon was made of chocolate? How would that affect, like, the length of the day? And you're like, oh, my God, that's that's a very open-ended, complex question. Uh, whereas in, and those are exciting questions, right? Like, yeah, it is an exciting question, but it's, it's very, um, from a teacher's perspective, it's inspiring and interesting to talk about. But in terms of just sort of satisfaction, like it's really nice in mathematics when children will come to you with things. And you can, compl- because, because the whole world's abstract, you can know everything that you need to know to solve it. Um, whereas in a real world problem, which, you know, um, sort of physical sciences are set in, uh, there's, you know, there's millions of different phenomena at play in every situation, you know, a real situation. So it's incredibly complex. Um, so I actually, even though like I'm sort of talking about the merits of, you know, embedding things in real world situations and, you know, looking beyond sort of abstract context, I, I know as a teacher, I find it really gratifying to be able to find an answer. You know, actually say, okay, in this situation, we know all the information and and this is how it would play out. And I find it very frustrating in science to not be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> that, that's a dilemma, right? So it's yeah. like a, a teaching abstract things, decontextualized things is just more... Uh, it, it seems so much easier because you can also save your face as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, and uh, yeah, all those reasons, because like also as, as uh, adults, we are not very comfortable with uncertainty, certainly in front of students. Yeah. Uh, partly you're kind a, of trying to reassure them that the world yeah. is knowable in a way. Like if you start telling kids too early, Oh, it's all very young. It's very unclear. You you, you almost worry as a teacher that if you send them out into the world with this sense that the world is unknowable, you know, that they they could disengage too far. So you you feel that you kind of need them to believe to a certain extent that you can find the truth in some way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's uh, the defined grade between sort of um, like just accepting and becoming ignorant or, or uh, being uh, aware of the ignorance and try to seek uh, some form of truth or seek knowledge and try to sort of adapt and uh, to, to the uncertainty, or inherent uncertainty of the reality. Those are two different things. But I can certainly see how you say like that. You just don't want kids to just give up and become <laughs> ignorant. So oh, the world is uh, everything is relative anyway. So why yeah, should I who care? Knows? Why bother? I mean, I kind yeah. of find that that in. Um conversation you know so as i've been like reading more and learning more about you know empirical research and wisdom you know i become much more sort of attuned to this idea that you know there's many many ways of looking at things multiple perspectives etc etc so you know amy my wife will say ah let's talk about this you know hot political topic and i you know i definitely went through a period where i was just like well who really knows you know like and (laughs) you know that becomes quite unhelpful you know it may well be the case but you need to still like be motivated to believe that you can know something about the world like otherwise yeah. you just kind of drop out <laughs> well i mean you can think about this uh in many different ways but two ways that have been helpful to some of the philosophers is like you can either think about it in terms of consequences so what kind of consequences do you want and then work backwards to some extent or you think about it in terms of well what are the overarching moral principles that I, uh, under no circumstances I would want to violate that actually making me a good person. And so like, and that's, uh, but you need some kind of a jump. It's either a jump board from which you jump 
right? Like more Kantian in a way, deontological, yeah. some philosophers call it. Yeah. Or, and this is again, a crude uh, journalization because there are many more intricate uh, sure. representations of it. Or you think about the consequences uh, and uh, then sort of, to some extent, uh, create a, um, a framework that would lead to this or that, those consequences. I'm to some extent more of the second type, but I do think that of obviously you have some kind of common agreements. Uh, well, I mean, Okay, that uh, reveals, betrays my consequentialist orientation, I guess, because <laughs> the notion of common agreements, like you say, common, that right away is already assumes that it, it's not true in general. Yeah. Uh, that's true only in, in, in some sort of empirical uh, common form. I think, Igor, we should probably um, bring a close to our first ever um, podcast episode. Do you... Um, I was going to just tell everyone about the theme for next week or the next the next episode. Okay. Would you have any uh, closing thoughts? Anything you you want to tackle? No, I think. Yeah. Well, I think I'm good. Uh, I think I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, next time, episode two is going to be uh, on sages, wisdom, and death. I'm really looking forward to that. Sounds um, sounds like a pretty optimistic, cheery topic. So that's something to look forward to next time. <laughs> That's right. That will be exciting. <laughs> <laughs>